Lord, we do thank you for the privilege of really getting to know you. Lord, we thank you that we already know Christ as our Savior, but Lord, may we increasingly come to know him as our all in all. May we come to see that in him is found everything that's of real and lasting value. And Lord, may we not waste our lives pursuing things that will never endure. But may we spend our lives getting to know him. Because we'll be continuing to do that throughout eternity. Lord, we thank you for Paul's letter to the church in Colossae. Just the riches that are found therein. And Lord, I just look to you to guide this morning as we move forward with our study. Just open our eyes to the precious truths that are found herein. And Lord, uh, I just pray that your Spirit will teach us to appropriate the provisions that are ours in Christ into our daily experience so that increasingly Christ might be formed in us. For it's in his precious name now we pray. Amen. Okay, the last two times we were together, we were looking at the section of uh, Paul's letter here that focuses on the sufficiency of Christ as evidenced by his preeminence over all things. And of course, let me go back to the theme. And I like to review this over and over again. If you don't learn anything else, I hope by the time we get through with this study, you'll know the theme. Because it summarizes basically in one sentence what uh, the letter is about. I think I shared on one of the first times together my my nephews going to Dallas Theological Seminary, and in one of his early classes, one of the past, uh, I mean, one of the teachers asked how many of them had grown up in evangelical churches that did expository teaching, and a whole lot of the class raised their hand. And he asked, how many of you have been through the book of Romans? And again, many of them raised their hand. And he said, who can tell me what the book of Romans is about? And not one of them raised their hand. (laughs) Because, I mean, they looked at great detail at the little pieces of Romans... But they'd never really come to grasp in a, in a concise way what the whole letter was about. And that's important. When it comes to Colossians, if you want to boil it down into one sentence, what this letter is about, is that the Christian life finds its sole source in Jesus Christ who is preeminent over all things. Everything you and I need for the Christian life is found in Christ. And there's really nowhere else to look because He is above all things. And that's what we spent the last two classes looking at. We got into what was known as the Christ Hymn. And we saw that in it... Christ is seen to be the source from which creation came. Well, first of all, he's seen to be the image of the invisible God. That in him, the 
invisible is made visible. Everything that's true of God is seen in him. Because the fullness of God is in him. And then we saw that creation is sourced in him. It was created by him. It was created for him. And he is the one who continues to hold creation together. And we saw then that he is also the beginning of the new creation. And whether it's with regard to the original creation or the new creation, he holds the high position of firstborn. The highest, most exalted position in both these realms. And we saw that this one in whom is the fullness of God, the fullness of creation, the fullness of the new creation, it was in him that all things are reconciled. And they're reconciled through his blood. And we saw, you know, uh, that God saw fit to take the one that has the fullness of everything in him. And use him to be the instrument of reconciliation. To reconcile us to God, but to reconcile all things ultimately to him. Now, at this point in the letter, Paul moves from that topic to focusing on his ministry. The ministry that had been entrusted to him as an apostle. And we're going to see that as Paul talks about his ministry, it is a ministry that focused on the sufficiency of Christ. Paul preached Christ. Now, Paul begins his description of his ministry with this statement. Now, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. It's interesting, as Paul talked about his ministry, talked about rejoicing in it. That his ministry was something that brought him joy. It was something that brought him personal delight. It was not a drudgery. And I think that's important. It wasn't something that he stoically endured. I mean, unfortunately, I've heard, you know, I've sat in a lot of missions conferences and things, and I've heard people get up and talk about their ministry as if it's this heavy burden on them. Something's wrong. If that's the case. You know, if we are truly serving as an outflow of our relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ, ministry is not intended to be this burdensome thing. No, that's not to say everything is going to be easy. But there should be joy in it. And if there's not joy, we really have to back off and consider why the joy's not there. 
You know, that passage where Christ talks about, you know, the burden being, uh, uh, you know, taking his yoke upon him and, the, you know, the burden being light or easy. And a lot of people say, I, I just don't understand that. Well, that's because a lot of times they're trying to carry what only Christ can carry. If the burdens burden you down, you're probably taking on something you weren't meant to, meant to carry. Paul, you know, was involved in an awfully lot, and yet he found joy in it, joy in serving him. And what's amazing about this statement is that Paul expressed even. Joy in the midst of the things he was suffering for the sake of the Colossian believers. See, I mean, it's easy to find joy in service when everything's going along great. When you're seeing great fruit flowing from your ministry, when everybody's t- uh, praising you for, uh, for the work you're doing, yeah, you can find joy. But what about when things are tough? What about when you're, you're plodding along year after year and not seeing a lot of fruit? Is the joy still there? You know, the real test of the source of our service is when trials come along. Now, for Paul, who in his letter to the church at Philippi said, For me to live is Christ and to die in gain, his gain, Christ was the source of his ministry. And so he was able to face the trials of life and ministry with the same kind of attitude you find described about Christ over in Hebrews chapter 12 verse 2 where the writer of Hebrews says, Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Now, I mean, even with Christ, it wasn't that the suffering was joyous, but there was joy in knowing what was being achieved through the suffering. See, the joy with which Paul ministered, which even involved him suffering, was drawn from the fact that he knew that everything he was suffering had value to it. Peter, in his first epistle, wrote regarding righteous suffering. And in 1 Peter, there's a lot about suffering. And he speaks to the subject of righteous suffering. And he says, For this finds favor. For if for the sake of conscience toward God a man bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly, for what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated you endure it with patience? But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. 
I think one of the indicators at times of what when we're doing things through the energy of the flesh, the flesh kind of is willing to suffer if they at times if it's done something wrong, but it does not want to suffer for not doing wrong. The flesh doesn't want to suffer for doing what's right. And yet, Peter says, you know, where's, you know, where is God honored in us being willing to patiently suffer for things we've, we've done wrong? The honor is found in, in being willing to suffer for the sake of what is right. To endure it patiently for righteousness' sake. Just like Christ did. So Paul could find joy in his suffering because he knew his suffering. Whether it was for the Colossians or the Laodiceans or the, for the Romans or whoever. His, righteousness, his suffering was for righteousness sake. He knew it had value. Now in addition to seeing his suffering as an act of service for the believers there in Colossae. Paul goes on to tell us that he, as he looked at the things he was suffering, he saw them as helping complete the sufferings of Christ for his body, the church. Verse 24, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I do share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up, or completing, that which is lacking in Christ's affliction. Now what on earth is Paul talking about here? You know, what was lacking in Christ's uh, affliction? What was lacking in what Christ suffered? I like some of the things that W.H. Griffith Thomas writes on this subject. Thomas starts out, he says that it certainly does not refer to his expiatory sufferings on the cross. You know, the sufferings by which he atoned for our sins, by which he substituted for us. He says, it certainly doesn't refer to his expiatory sufferings on the cross, which were, as we know, perfect and complete. These need no supplement whatsoever. They are not only complete, but they are unique and they are eternal in their uh, significance and their efficacy. It says, look, what Christ did on the cross was complete. It lacks nothing. You know, we cannot add to what Christ did there on the cross. But while there's nothing we can add to what he did on the cross through his suffering, every believer can become involved in what we might describe as his ministerial sufferings. Thomas goes on to write, The afflictions of every saint and martyr may rightly be said to supplement the afflictions of Christ and the Christian church is built up by acts of self-denial that continue those begun by him. Indeed, that which is lacking, says Lightfoot, will never be fully supplemented until the struggle with sin and unbelief is brought to a close. So they're saying, you know, we can't add to what Christ did on the cross. 
But we can become involved with Him in the suffering that's involved in ministry. In carrying out His work. You know, when Christ hung on the cross and there at the end He cried out, It is finished. He was indicating that His sufferings for the redemption of man were complete. That that aspect of His work was done. But that didn't mean Christ's work was done. Of course, we we get into the book of Hebrews. We see Christ today is still actively at work. He's our high priest. He's our advocate. Christ is still very active. He has finished the work of redemption. But he has not finished the work of rescuing Men and women from the lost and dying world. He's still very active in that. And there's still suffering involved. You know, in the years following his death, burial, and resurrection, there would be much suffering endured in the establishment of the church. There would be much blood spilled in carrying the gospel to the ends of the earth. And I think it's important to realize that as the head of the church, Christ suffers with his body. You know, it's so easy to think that Christ is sitting up there in heaven and everything's hunky-dory. You know, we're down here enduring life in this sin-cursed world and he's up there just having a good old time. But Christ suffers with his people. I just finished teaching through Revelation on Sunday nights. And and as you go through Revelation, you see, you know, sin is not present in heaven, but the impact of sin is. You see over and over how what's happening on earth is impacting what's going on in heaven. And it's being felt there. To me, a very moving passage is in Acts. When Stephen is being stoned, and he looks up to heaven and he sees Christ standing. Why? Because Christ is generally seen seated. And it's almost as if Christ is so moved, and maybe even say enraged by what's going on. That he comes to his feet. He he steps out of his seat and he comes to his feet. As he suffers with Stephen. And what Stephen's going through. W.H. Griffith Thomas goes on to write. And I think this is really beautiful the way he describes it. In these afflictions we in our turn, can share. And this is the inspiring and beautiful truth the Apostle emphasizes here. It has been expressed thus. We cannot create the vital seed, but we can plant it and tend it and water it, and we can labor for an abundant harvest. And thus it is that our filling up of the suffering of Christ is not done on the hill called Calvary, 
It is done on the long road which begins at the empty tomb and which stretches through Jerusalem and Samaria and reaches to the uttermost parts of the earth. In the Christian redemption, our sufferings are not fundamental. They are supplemental. Sacrificial disciples are needed to proclaim the sacrificial work of our Lord. Only in this way can we fill up that which is lacking in the afflictions of Christ. We must not be daunted, therefore, if called upon to suffer. For thereby we shall be permitted to set forward the progress of the church and the accomplishment of God's purpose. I like the way he describes it, that the suffering that that we share in isn't on Calvary. It starts at the empty tomb and stretches through Jerusalem and Samaria and Judea and all the way across the globe as we continue to suffer with Christ in carrying forth his work in this world. Now Paul was willing to suffer in this way because he understood the significance of the message that had been entrusted to him. In verse 25, we find that Paul saw himself as one who had been made a servant of the church. He says, of this church I was made a minister, and the word minister has to do with a servant, according to the stewardship from God, bestowed on me for your benefit, that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. Paul saw himself as a servant of the church. And this is something that is very consistent as you go through the New Testament, starting with with Christ's ministry. And that is that God's concept of leadership is that of servant leadership. It's what Christ himself modeled. He came not to be served, but to serve. And that's what leaders within the body of Christ are intended to do. You're not to be in a leadership role so that people can serve you. That's the world's view. You know, when you're in a leadership role in the world, you know, people are there to to serve you. Within the church, leaders are there to serve the body. And Paul, who was an apostle, you might say a leader of leaders, (laughs) saw himself not as someone to be served by those under him, but to be a servant himself. And as a servant of the church, he saw himself as having a stewardship entrusted to him. Now, a steward in that day was a servant in which, uh, to whom the master had entrusted the affairs of his household. Now, we hear, you know, in Christian circles, we often hear a lot of messages on stewardship, and normally it's about money and buildings. We need to be good stewards of what God has given us. 
And generally it's about the buildings we're, we're using and the monies that come in in the offering. We want to be good stewards. And I'm not saying we shouldn't, but it's interesting that in the New Testament, that's not the way stewardship is used. Stewardship is spoken of on, on, a num- on several occasions. Paul himself speaks of it uh, more than once. But stewardship in the New Testament has to uh, do with grace and truth. The scriptures, that which had been entrusted to them. Paul saw himself in a position of stewardship with regards to the church, but his stewardship, it wasn't about the money or the buildings, which they didn't have buildings back then, but it wasn't about any of that stuff. Here, he talks about being a steward of the Word of God, and as he goes on, a steward of a specific portion of that Word. He goes on to say, you know, uh, he's been made a steward that I might fully carry out the preaching of God's Word. That is the mystery that has been hidden from past ages and generations, but has now been manifested to His saints. Now, mystery is a term we find coming up on a number of occasions in the New Testament. And a mystery in the New Testament is a truth that had not been previously revealed. It's something that had always been part of God's plan, but is something that He had withheld from revealing until that point in time. And Paul uses the term several times because God used Paul to reveal a a number of things that had never before been known. And this mystery that he says had been entrusted to him as a steward was Christ in you. Now you can search the Old Testament scriptures from beginning to end and you will not find anywhere in the Old Testament the concept either of being in Christ or Christ being in the believer. Those concepts were not back there. Now that had always been part of God's plan. But they knew nothing of it. They they didn't know that when when the Messiah came, that he would be like this. They were mysteries that had long been withheld, but now were being revealed. And Paul, as a steward of them, had had the privilege of revealing this, not only to the, the, the Jewish believers but also among the Gentiles. says, To whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. 
Here Paul also says that it is Christ in us that is our hope of glory. Any glory you or I are going to ever experience is going to flow from Christ being in us. It's not going to flow from us apart from him. And this is with good reason. In Revelation 19.1, as you come to the end of the, uh, the tribulation, it is declared that the salvation belongs to, uh, to, uh, to Christ. The power belongs to God. The glory belongs to Him. The glory belongs to Christ. It doesn't belong to us. But we can share in His glory. As His life is formed in us and seen through us. Now, because everything you and I are and have that's of any real value flows from Christ, Christ became the focal point of Paul's message. Verse 28. And we proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom, that we may present every man complete in Christ. And for this purpose also I labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. Colossians 1.28 is the verse Jonelle and I used on our brochure when we were raising support to go to Ireland. Because we wanted to be known that as we went forth, we were going to preach Christ. And that was Paul. Paul did not preach Christianity. He didn't promote Christianity. He promoted Christ. Paul did not uh, uh, promote some system of righteousness. He promoted Christ. You might say, well, you get over in his letters and, and there are these things he talks about, about how husbands and wives and children. and are to, That is to be an outflow of our relationship with Christ. He talks about Christ and that in his letter. Generally at the beginning of his letter, it's focused on the provisions of Christ. And then at the end, latter part of the letter, his focus goes to how this is intended to manifest itself in our lives if our focus is right. But we get cause and effect reversed. We start thinking if we can produce this kind of life, then we will be a Christ-filled person. No! If our lives are filled with Christ, this is what our life will look like. This is what will result. We are bad about getting the, the cart before the horse. One time when we were in Ireland, we were dealing with this issue. And I had Jonelle walk in dressed up like a tree. You know, she put on a brown outfit, had a brown trunk, and we had leaves and fruit and things hanging on her. And, and, I, and I said, what are you doing? And she said, I'm becoming a tree. A tree has leaves, a tree has fruit, a tree has a brown trunk. 
Those may be descriptions of a tree, but putting those on don't make you a tree. Made her look a bit like a fruit, but... uh, uh, (laughs) But isn't that not what we often do with the Christian life? We look at what a a life of Christ flowing through us is, is going to look like, and we say, if I can make my life look like that, then I'll be a Christ-centered believer. No! You've got to go back to Christ. Paul said that he preached Christ. I guess. Yeah. Uh, just to is in us, it produces something very real. And that's important because so often Christians get accused of hypocrisy. And why is that? Because people can spot a fake. They can spot if we are trying to put on an appearance. They can also spot if it's real. I often think about You know, Charlie Jones was one of the elders here many, many years ago. When we were raising support, he was working on a shed behind his house. And I I had some time and I went over there and helped him. And we were sitting at lunch one day and he said, Rick, I want to tell you something I've never told you before. He said, when your dad first came to town, he spoke to a men's group I was in. And as I listened to your dad... I said to myself, what this man has is real. And he said, I looked your dad up afterwards and your dad got me in the Word and helped me come to know Christ. And it changed everything. 
But he said, what I saw I knew was real. Christ produces something very real. Doesn't mean we're perfect. But people can see if we're faking it if, or if it's really flowing from within. And Christ is wanting to produce something very, very real in your life and in mine. And so Paul knew that. And so he preached Christ. You know, he, in his letter to the church at Philippi, he talked about the fact that his burning desire for himself was to know Christ. Now he says that his desire in ministry was to make him known. So that ultimately he would be able to present every man to God complete in Christ. And the Greek word translated complete here has to do with being brought to maturity or completion. And Paul's desire was not just see people become new believers. His desire was to see people come to a depth of knowledge of Christ that would take them to maturity. And for this reason, he was willing to uh, endure conflict for, uh, and suffering for people he had never even met. We saw earlier in an earlier study, he had never been to the church at Colossae. And he says, for I want you to know how great a struggle I have on behalf of those, uh, uh, on your behalf and for those in Laodicea, another church he had never been to. And for all those who, uh, uh, who have not personally seen my face. He says, man, I, you know, um, have this desire and I'm willing to suffer for people I've never even met so that they might come to know Christ in a deeper, more personal way. Now I was intending to go a little further in my notes today, but I think I'm going to stop there and I want to read a little story that I think is apropos at, at this point. It says, years ago there was a very wealthy man who with his devoted son shared a passion for art collecting. Together they traveled around the world, adding only the finest art treasures to their collection. Priceless works by Picasso, Van Gogh, Manet, and many others adorned the walls of the family estate. The widowed elderly man looked on with satisfaction as his only child became an experienced art collector. The son's trained eye and sharp business mind caused his father to beam with pride as they dealt with art collectors around the world. As winter approached, war engulfed the nation and the young man left to serve his country. After only a few short weeks, the father received a telegram. His beloved son was missing in action. The art collector anxiously awaited more news, fearing he would never see his son again. Within days, his fears were confirmed. The young man had died while rushing to a fellow soldier, uh, 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 rushing a fellow soldier to a medic. Distraught and lonely, the old man faced the upcoming Christmas holidays with anguish and sadness. 
The joy of the season, a season that he and his son has so looked forward to, uh, would visit his house no longer. On Christmas morning, a knock on the door awakened the depressed old man. As he walked to the door, the masterpieces of art on the walls only reminded him that his son was not coming home. As he opened the door, he was greeted by a soldier with a large package in his hand. He introduced himself to to the man by saying, I was a friend of your son. I was the one he was rescuing when he died. May I come in for a few moments? I have something to show you. As the two began to talk, the soldier told him of how the man's son had told everyone of his, uh, his, not to mention his father's love of fine art. I'm an artist, said the soldier, and I want to give you this. As the old man unwrapped the package, the paper gave way to reveal a portrait of the man's son. Though the world would never consider it a work of a genius, the painting featured the young man's face with striking detail. Overcome with emotion, the man thanked the soldier, promising to hang the picture above the fireplace. A few hours later, after the soldier had departed, the old man set about his task. True to his word, the painting went above the fireplace, pushing aside thousands of dollars' worth of paintings. And then the man sat in his chair and spent Christmas gazing at the gift he had been given. During the days and weeks that followed, the man realized that even though his son was no longer with him, the boy's life would live on because of those he had touched. He would soon learn that his son had rescued dozens of wounded soldiers before the bullet stilled his caring heart. As the stories of his son's gallantry continued to reach him, fatherly pride and satisfaction began to ease the grief. The painting of his son soon became his most prized possession, far eclipsing any interest in the pieces for which museums around the world clamored. He told his neighbors it was the greatest gift he had ever received. The following spring, the old man became ill and passed away. The art world was in anticipation. With the collector's passing and and his only son dead, those paintings would be sold at an auction. According to the will of the old man, all the artworks would be auctioned on Christmas Day, the day that he had received his greatest gift. As the day soon arrived and art collectors from around the world gathered to bid on some of the world's most spectacular paintings, dreams would be fulfilled this day. Greatness would be achieved as many could claim to have the greatest collection. The auction began with a painting that was not on any museum's list. It was the painting of the man's son. The auctioneer asked for an opening bid. The room was silent. Who will open the bid with $100, he asked. Minutes passed. No one spoke. From the back of the room came, who cares about that painting? It's just a picture of his son. Let's forget it and go on to the good stuff. More voices echoed in in agreement. No, we have to sell this one first, replied the auctioneer. Now who will take the son? Finally, a friend of the old man spoke. Will you take $10 for the painting? That's all I have. I knew the boy, so I'd love to have it. I have ten. I have $10. Will anyone go higher, called the auctioneer. And after more silence, the auctioneer said, going once, going twice, gone. The gavel fell. Cheers filled the room and someone exclaimed, Now we can get on with it. We can bid on these treasures. The auctioneer looked at the audience and announced the auction was over. 
Stunned disbelief uh, quieted the room. Someone spoke up and said, What do you mean it's over? We didn't come here for a picture of some old guy's son. What about all these paintings? There are millions of dollars of art here. I demand that you explain what's going on here. The auctioneer replied, It's very simple. According to the will of the Father, he who takes the son gets it all. We look for so many things in so many places. But the truth of the matter is, according to the will of the Father, he who takes the Son gets it all. Everything we're looking for is in Christ. And we're going to see that more and more as we move forward through this letter. But we get caught up in things that distract us from Him. I mean, even the Christian life can distract us from Christ. Caught up trying to be something or live in a certain way rather than really getting to know Him as our all in all. You know, we had a dear friend in Ireland and she was talking with her sister-in-law one time and her sister-in-law started saying, you know, I have problems with a lot of Christians and just talking about her, her, her struggles with Christianity. And, you know, our friend said it suddenly dawned on her she didn't have to defend Christians and Christianity. In fact, she said, you know, I have problems with a lot of Christians too, but let me tell you about Christ. Let me tell you about Christ. See, we get caught up in all these other things. And Paul didn't get caught up in those. He said, I preach Christ. My desire is to see everybody made mature in Him. And I hope we come to see how practical it is just getting to know Christ. I used to tell my students, I have yet to meet anybody who made getting to know Christ their focus, that were not transformed by Him over time. That the more they came to know Him, the more He changed everything. We saw that in our Irish friends. Everything they couldn't produce began to flow from them as they came to know Christ as their life. When they tried to witness in their own strength, they turned their families off and drove their friends away. When Christ became real in them, it opened doors to them that they had never seen open before. So I hope as we move forward that I can encourage you more and more to get your focus on the Lord Jesus Christ. Make Him your focus And it will change everything. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, man, when we stop and think of who he is, we think of just all that the word reveals about him and that he cares for us. And Lord, that he wants to be our source of everything. May each one in this room make him their focus. May they come to know him in a life-transforming way. For it's in his precious name we pray. Amen.